Hey Amen. Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to John's Gospel, chapter number 15. The Gospel of John in chapter 15. And we're going to begin reading there in verse number 1. And so I hope that you've made adequate preparations for this weather. If you live in an older home, take a look when you get up, get home today and make sure that your pipes in your attic are insulated, things of that nature. Uh, do what you can. Uh, and so I, I covered all mine outside yesterday, covered them with plastic so that the cloth don't get saturated with the rain and freeze anyway. And so I'm amazed I'm driving around and I see a lot of folks, they wrap some cloth around their pipe, but they didn't cover it from the rain. And so it's not going to do them a lot of good. Uh, and so, but just take what precautions you can uh, and then ask the Lord to help and, and protect you. Just be safe, be smart. And uh, as you go and you get over these next few days, we're not equipped for this kind of weather. I've lived in uh, 27 below with a wind chill 70 below. I think it's the coldest day I remember in Chicago when we lived there for about four or five years. And, uh, and so it, it, it wears on you. It takes a toll and it just gets cold and stays cold for uh, two or three days. If you're not used to it or you've never lived in it, it's going to seem like about a month. Uh, and so uh, just be cautious and do what you can to stay warm and watch out for others that, uh, that need some help. But John chapter number 15 and beginning in verse 1, the Bible says there, I am the true vine and my father is the husbandman. And every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, and no more can ye, except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch, and is withered. And men may gather and then cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, than a man laid down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and ordained you, that ye should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain that whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he may give it you. And I want to continue with our thought on discipleship this morning. We talked about what a disciple is a couple of weeks ago. Uh, last week we looked at being a disciple. And this morning uh, I want to share with you how to make a disciple. And let's pray together. Father, thank you for the day that you've given. Lord, thank you for the opportunity that we have to open your word. May we also open our hearts and our minds to receive it. 
Holy Spirit, I pray that you would work freely amongst us. I pray that you would convict us of our sin. I pray that you would make this truth come alive to us. May, uh, may we understand it. May we be confronted and challenged by it. Uh, and Lord, may our lives be guided by it. We pray in Jesus' name and amen. As you look at a day like today, of course, uh, from the world standpoint, it's Valentine's Day. Uh, and so it's kind of sort of a pseudo holiday, uh, a day when you should express love to, uh, to your significant other. Uh, and so, but you ought to be doing that every day anyway. And so, uh, you know, we looked, my wife and I were sitting having coffee this morning and we were kind of, usually we're fairly rushed on Sunday morning. Uh, and today was no exception. Then we try to take just a few minutes to sit down and share a cup of coffee before we really get busy getting ready to get up to the church. And uh, and so we're sitting there having coffee and she said, you know, it's Valentine's Day. I don't have anything for you. Of course, with the weather, she's not going to run out and get anything now. And I'm like, you know, I don't either. She says, you know, I love you, right? And she says, I know, I know that you love me. I said, we're good. And uh, of course, it helps that we were just out of town celebrating our anniversary a week ago. Uh, and so that uh, kind of takes a little bit of the edge off. And so, uh, you know, I, I, we're one of those things that where we just kind of look at things. And, and rightfully so, we talk a lot about love on these types of days and talk about a lot, the love of God in these types of days. Uh, and so, and I'm so grateful that God does love us. Uh, I, I do think that sometimes that we, that a lot of churches get out of balance and the world certainly gets out of balance with focusing on God's love and forgetting everything else about God. Uh, and so the, the truth of the matter is, is that genuine love does what's needed, not what's liked or accepted all the time. Uh, we have this concept that to love someone is to just say whatever, to agree with whatever they want to hear. Uh, we get offended and say, you don't love me if, if someone confronts us or goes against something that we're trying to accomplish or something that we want or something that we uh, are working on. And so that, that's not biblical love. Biblical love we see expressed in the life of Christ and, and that love is confronting. Uh, a parent doesn't love their child when they leave them to their own devices and just let them do whatever they want. A parent expresses love to his child when he disciplines that child and teaches and trains that child how to think, how to behave, how to act, uh, how to interact with others. And, uh, and certainly there's, there is compassion and there is uh, nurturing and there are acts of kindness and that all go in that, but you can't separate one aspect of it from the other. Uh, and so that in mind, as we look here at our, the context of our passage, when you read the Bible, it's important that you know uh, what the setting of the story is. And so uh, who is speaking? Who are they speaking to? Uh, what is the message that they're trying to convey? What is the backdrop historically of what's going on? And, uh, and Jesus here is speaking, and he's speaking to 11 of his 12 disciples. Judas is off betraying him at this very moment. He has left uh, the, the upper room. Uh, they are not in a room here. They are in transition. They're walking. They've left the upper room at the Last Supper and they are walking to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus will pray uh, and where he will be arrested and taken into custody and then led to Caiaphas's house and illegally tried three times before morning and then wrongly convicted and crucified by Pilate and the Romans on the next day. So Jesus knows that this is it. I've had my last meal, I've had my last rest, these are my last words before the crucifixion to my 11 men. 
These men that I've chosen, these men that I've invested three and a half years of my life in, these are the last, this is the last significant conversation that he has with them. They get to the Garden of Gethsemane, he goes to pray, he says with them, watch and pray. He comes back, they fall asleep, he goes and prays again, he comes back, they fall asleep again. And then at some point he just says, you know what, just go ahead and sleep it out. Uh, and then Judas comes and he's arrested. He knows exactly what's happening. And you stop and you think about it. If you were given the opportunity to know the moment of your death and to be lucid mentally uh, leading up to that moment, to have the ability to gather your, those that you love the most into your presence so that you could express one final, what's most important in your life to convey to them in that moment, that's what Jesus is doing here. He knows that within the next few hours, he'll be arrested. He knows that in less than 24 hours from this moment, he'll be in a grave. He understands fully what he's about to, what he's about to go through. And he's preparing them and he's laying the groundwork to them. And it's a beautiful indication of the Christian life and analogy that he gives them in the vine and the branches. I am the vine, you are the branches. Uh, you know, the thing about uh, the branch is the branch has no ability to life on its own. It, it is a beautiful picture of what Christ does for us. So I, uh, I, last year in the spring, I decided that it was time uh, that I prune my trees in my front yard, the two oak trees, and pretty much everybody in our neighborhood has those things. And uh, by the looks of mine, they hadn't really been pruned probably ever. Uh, and so I'm looking at other people's yards, and they've got these beautifully shaped and formed trees. And I even talked to a couple of the guy, the crews that were in the neighborhood, finding out what they had charged to, you know, trim them up and to haul them off. And and they wanted, you know, three or four hundred dollars to trim. Uh, a couple hundred dollars a tree, and, and I'm thinking, you know, I can go buy a little cheap chainsaw, a little electric one for about 50 bucks, and so uh, that and, is a whole lot cheaper than paying somebody else to do it, and so I, I, that's what I did. I went, and I got, and I'm climbing around in the tree, and there's all these little sprigs off the trunk, so the main branches coming off are probably six, eight inches, something like that, and then there's all these dead, dried, little twig-looking branches that are off of it, and out at the ends, it's, there's leaves, and it's green, and they're pretty, and they're growing new, uh, and then all along the way, uh, there's just all these branches off, so I'm, I want to get rid of them. I don't want to hurt the tree, and I got to notice, and I climbed up there, and pretty much all I had to do was just push on them a little bit, and most of them just snapped off. They were dead, they were dry, they were connected, they, they, you didn't really notice them from the road, they, they blended into the scenery around them, but they weren't producing fruit, not so much as a leaf, they were just dried up and withered and, and worthless. And ultimately, I raked them up and uh, I had got a, the 18-foot trailer from back here at the church and uh, I piled all my branches up on it and I raked all those up and threw them on there, then I cinched it down and brought them up and, uh, for the burn pile here. And, uh, and, and that's what happened to them. They looked connected. From a distance, they looked like they were a living part of the tree, but in reality, they were dead. They were just attached. I wonder this morning how many Christians are simply attached. I'm not saying that we're not saved on our way to heaven. I'm saying that there's no life force in us anymore. That our spiritual life is withered up to nothingness. 
and is dried. Now I want you to get the analogy here that Jesus is giving because he's saying, I am the vine. I am the giver and the sustainer of life. And whenever weather like this comes, when winter comes, uh, the sap that's within the plants comes, draws down into the root system to protect the, the trunk and the body and the root system of the plant. Uh, and the fringes, the branches and the smaller branches especially, they dry up and they wither and then the leaves fall off and, uh, and they come down to earth and everything's bare and it's a picture, it's symbolic of death in nature. Isn't it amazing how God put the gospel even in nature? And, and then in the spring when the weather warms and the sap begins to return to uh, all parts of that plant, then the leaves begin to grow and life returns and it's made alive again. It's regenerated like the spirit within us is regenerated when we trust Jesus as our Savior and, uh, and we're brought back to life, spiritually speaking. And so uh, what he's saying here is that I am the vine, I'm the trunk. You're a branch. Your job, your function is to stay attached to me to allow my life-giving force to flow through you that you might then produce fruit. That life-giving force in us, in my mind, and you can disagree with me if you like on this particular point because I, I can't really put a chapter and verse to it. It's just the way that I am picture God working in our life. That the Holy Spirit of God that indwells me is symbolic of the sap that's within the vine and the branches. When the Holy Spirit is stifled in my life, I wither up and I die spiritually. But when the Holy Spirit is able to flow freely, then I'm going to bear fruit. I'm going to have the fruit of the Spirit. I'm going to be a fruit-bearing, fruit-producing, uh, fruit-bearing Christian. And so Jesus is saying to them, I am the vine. Now remember, he's on his way to the cross. Not in a week, not in a month, but in a matter of a few hours. In less than a day, he'll be beaten, crucified, and placed in a grave. He knows that. He knows the timeline. He understands what Judas is doing. He knows to whom he's speaking. There's nothing that's taking him by surprise, but his disciples don't get it. Oh, they may have an idea of, hey, at some point this is coming, but it's pretty obvious that they don't understand that it's happening in this moment. Why do you say that, Pastor? I say that because if they, if they really believed and understood that the Romans were coming and Caiaphas was coming to take him into custody in the matter of an hour or two when he said to them to pray that they would have been fervently praying, not falling asleep. If, if they really believed that this was in this moment, they would have been very vigilant, but they weren't. They were falling asleep. In other words, they were taking this just as a normal, ordinary, regular day. This is just another day in the life of our ministry with Christ. But it was certainly much more than that. He says, I am the vine. You're the branches. You have to stay connected to me and produce and bear fruit. Now, there are three thoughts of this just by way of introduction this morning uh, that I think that we see here. And we're going to go through this and then we're going to come back and go through it again. First thing that I would say is that there's a message here. Jesus has a message to his disciples. And it is a message in verse number 9 where he says, As the Father has loved me, so love I you. As God loved me, that's how I love you. And then he, uh, he tells them then, continue ye in my love. Continue in my love. God loved me. I've loved you in the same way. Stay in my love. In other words, stay connected to the vine. Stay engaged with the Spirit of God. Stay alert and walking with Christ. And the message 
is a message of genuine expression. He is genuinely expressing to them how much God loved him and how much he loves them and how desperately he wants them to be successful in their Christian life. And he is, he is laying out to them a genuine expression of love. The Father loved me. I love you. Continue in my love. Stay here. It's, a, it's an intentional decision to stay in the love of God. Continue. In other words, you could choose to not continue. Choose to stay. Choose to be a part. Choose to be engaged. Choose to be uh, united with Christ. And then we, so we see this message, this genuine expression of love from Christ to his disciples. Then uh, we see the motive expressed here. Why would we do that? Why would we uh, give our lives for Christ? And why would we be a living sacrifice? And we saw the Father loving him. Now we see him expressing that love and embarking on a genuine endeavor. And so this genuine endeavor is how this looks practically. Yes, God loves me. Jesus loves me. I love him. What does that practically look like in my life? What must I endeavor to do to express to God love back? And in verse 10, he tells us, If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love. The keeping of his commandments is an expression of love. Now, I can keep his commandments without loving him. But real faith, real Christianity, a life that pleases God does not have a checklist of do's and don'ts for the Christian life to make the pastor, the church, parents, or uh, other members of the congregation happy. It is done as an expression of love to Christ. It is a practical endeavor, a genuine endeavor in my life. Am I genuine in my Christian walk in life? Then we see the manifestation of it coming to life in our lives as it's put on display uh, for the world at large. And this, this manifestation we see in verses 13 and 14, greater love hath no man than this, than a man laid down his life for his friends. Ye are my friends if ye do whatsoever I command you. And again, the context of the situation here. We, we speak that, we use those verses often, but we seldom think of them in their context. And when you understand what's going on, the power of the words, the power of the message is unmistakable. When God looks and he sends, Jesus looks at them and says, listen, the, the, my, my arresters are en route. They are almost here. I will be crucified tomorrow. I will be in the grave by sunset tomorrow. Greater love has no man than this. I told you that I love you. How much do I love you? Greater love hath no man than this, than a man laid down his life for his friends. I love you so much that in a matter of hours, I'm laying my life down for you. If you love me, keep my commandments. When you stop and you think about being one of those 11 men standing at his cross and gathering together after and the power of these words ringing true now that they make sense. He does love us. He did sacrifice for us. And this manifestation of the love of God is a genuine engagement. Genuinely engaging in what God has willed and ordained for our lives that it might be fulfilled. And that leads to a moment in verse 17 where he says, These things I command you that ye love one another. That moment when love springs to action. 
It is a genuine exercising of love in our daily life. Now, what does that look like? Well, love speaks truth. Love doesn't speak a stamp of approval to something that's untrue or that's hurtful. Listen, if you're making a bad decision about something you're going to do in your life and you call someone a friend because they encourage you to go through with it because it was just be, they're just being supportive of what you want to do, they're not your friend. They, they are leading you and encouraging you to destroy your life. That's not love. Jesus came and he spoke truth even when truth was harsh. He looked at the Pharisees and he called them liars. He told them that they were of their father, the devil. And the world rejects and says, well, Jesus is love. Jesus just, it just pats us on the back and coddles every little thing that we want. No, when they contradicted, when they rejected the message of the gospel, when they rejected his truth, the only absolute truth that matters, when they rejected that, you're of your father, the devil. You are just liars and he's, and he's a liar and the father of it. You are a generation of vipers, he said. You're nothing but a pit of poisonous snakes. Your hearts are corrupt. Your minds are corrupt. Now, to those that were seeking truth, he spoke kindly. He spoke compassionately. Then those that spoke opposed to the truth, he spoke sharply. But he loved them all. And when Jesus spoke, and what we understand about love is love is speaking truth. And love in the Christian life uh, confronts sin. If you want to have a good, godly Christian friend, that friend is not going to allow you to sin and not call you out on it. Why? Because it's going to destroy your life. And so genuine love, Bible love, the love of Christ speaks truth and it confronts sin. But once sin has been confronted and repented of, it forgives that sin. And one of the great plagues of the church today is that we are so hurt and offended not just with someone that we worship with now but perceived hurt or, ex or real and experienced hurt uh, from maybe uh, 20 or 30 years ago uh, that, that we can't get over that we will not forgive and it dominates and ruins our effectiveness in the Christian life today. And instead of building on the good and separating out the destructive, uh, we focus and live on the destructive. Listen, love forgives. Well, pastor, that person didn't, didn't ask forgiveness. Now they're dead. They can't. I'm just going to live with my bitterness and my anger. Nowhere does the command to forgive preceded by the thought if they ask for forgiveness. Forgiveness should be granted whether it's asked for or not. Because forgiving those that wrong us is not for their sake, it's for our sake. And so forgiveness, love forgives and then love restores. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, lest ye also be tempted. We could be in the same boat. Let's not be guilty of violating Romans 12, 3, where he tells, tells us not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Amen. Don't think that you couldn't become the thing that you most despise. Because if it weren't for the grace of God, we certainly could. Amen. Love forgives, love restores, and ultimately love obeys. And Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. So, Pastor, that's all well and good, but you, you said something about making a disciple. We have to understand 
what Jesus is trying to do in our lives before we get to that. The message from Jesus, the ultimate disciple maker here to his disciples as he prepares them to go out and make disciples is abide in me and I in you. Abide in me. What is a disciple then? Remember that a disciple is one who learns. A disciple is one who's willing to allow themselves to be appraised, to be valued, to be assessed by another, in this case by Jesus. To pick us apart, to find every flaw, to correct what needs to be correcting, to be appraised. It is to put into practice the things that we've learned and to continue to practice them until they're so mastered that they become second nature to us. And so when we look and we understand this, and athletes understand that concept well. You teach, a, you teach a, a, an athlete a drill to hone a skill, and they repeat it over and over again until it becomes second nature to them. A good ball player doesn't have to think about the techniques or the, or the motions of, uh, of the position that they're playing. The, the actual uh, things that they do just come naturally to them on the playing field. Why? Because they practiced it and practiced it and practiced it and they've drilled it and they've drilled it and they've drilled it. And they have allowed themselves to be coached. They've allowed themselves to be critiqued and criticized, to be appraised, to be encouraged. And we'll get to that in a minute. That's a disciple. Remember, Howard Hendricks told us that you cannot impart what you do not possess. I cannot teach someone to be a disciple if I am not a disciple. If I'm not a true disciple of Christ, I'll never be effective at teaching someone else to become one. To make a disciple of Christ, one must. Three thoughts this morning. Number one, teach a genuine message. If you would be a disciple maker this morning, if you would share Jesus, share the truth that all men are sinners, that none of us deserve heaven, all of us deserve to be separated for God in eternity in hell, to share that if you do not come to Jesus Christ, sorry for your sins, seeking his forgiveness and placing your faith in him, which allows him then to bestow the grace of God upon you to forgive that sin and to make alive in you a spirit that was dead in you, has lain dead in you when, since you were born, uh, that, 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 that new life in Christ takes place at the moment that I seek forgiveness of sin and receive the gift of God and eternal life. And in that moment, I become a Christian. That does not make me a disciple. A disciple is more. There are a lot of different levels of disciples. Some come and some go. Some are partially committed. Some are fully committed. There's only 11 that are here in this room. There are only 11 on the way to the garden. There are only 11 that are going to go out and reach the world. Yeah, he'll bring in the Apostle Paul down the road. But right now, in this moment, there are 11. To make a disciple, I must teach a genuine message. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man cometh unto the Father but by me. You can't get to the Father by good works. You can't get to the Father by going to church. You can't get to the Father by baptism. You can't get to the Father by going to confession. You can't go to the Father by taking communion. Jesus is the only way. Teach a pure, genuine message. 
And we see that in verse number 9. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. Two thoughts about this. First, teach a pure truth. Teach a pure truth. What is this message, Pastor? Teach it purely. In other words, don't water it down. Uh, don't dilute it. Don't pollute it. Just teach the truth. Preach the truth that God has given. The Apostle Paul stated in Acts chapter number 20 and uh, verse number 27. Uh, he says, For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. If, if, if I came up here and, and praise the Lord, today's the day we can freely talk about the love of Christ and everybody expects it and we embrace it and we want to hear about it and amen. I'm, I'm happy about that. But if that's all I ever preach week in and week out, I'm not preaching the whole counsel of God. If all I ever preach is uh, things that messages that pump you up and make you feel good and motivate you to go out and, and uh, you know, have a good time or to live your best life now or to do whatever it is that you want to do. Uh, that when, and when you go out there and you feel good about your life, I'm not doing my job. I'm not giving you the whole counsel of God because he also said, be holy for I am holy. And the reality is, is that I don't need part of the word of God. I need all of the word of God. I don't need part of God's character. I need all of God's character. I don't need part of God's nature. I need all of God's nature. And that's what God is seeking to develop in us. And Paul says, I have not failed to declare unto you all of the counsel of God. The good part and the hard part. The easy part uh, and, and the part that challenges you. The part that makes you feel like a failure and the part that lifts you up and makes you feel like you can conquer the world. All of it is necessary. Teach a pure truth. If you'd make a disciple this morning, that message must be genuine. The truth must, that's taught must be pure. And the, then we must teach a powerful truth. Hebrews chapter number 4 and verse number 12. And uh, most uh, will know the verse well. Uh, and we refer to it fairly often. Uh, but Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. Uh, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing the, even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and as a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. But Pastor, I, I, I feel like God's doing this in my life and I feel like God's doing this and I feel, God, be careful of following feel, feelings. Yeah. Jeremiah wrote that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Your own heart will deceive you. How do I make sure that my heart is in line with the word of God? It, it feels really right, Pastor. It feels like God is moving. How can I be sure that this isn't just some emotional thing in my life and it's really the power and the spirit of God moving? But the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword that divides even to the joints and the marrow. It separates the soul and the spirit. In other words, it reveals to us the real motive of our heart. And it hurts it's cutting. It, it, it talks about cutting through joints. If you've ever been hunting and, and had to deal with uh, butchering a large animal, you know that it's not easy uh, to cut through the, the leg bone and to get the meat off of there. When you sever the unuseful parts of the animal, you go to the joint and you cut through the joint. You don't try to saw through the bone. That's the picture here. I know it's a little gruesome, but it's the picture that he's giving. It is a sharp sword that can separate 
the joints. Listen, there's a lot of things in my life that need to be separated from my life that don't separate easily. The Word of God is a powerful truth. And it teaches a powerful truth. What do I need this morning? I need to teach a genuine message, a genuine truth, a truth that is pure and a truth that is powerful. Listen, people don't need watered down Christianity. They need the word of God in its full presence in essence. Number two this morning, not only do I, must I teach if I would make a disciple, not only must I teach a genuine message, but I must become a genuine mentor. In other words, I must be a genuine example. Who are you mentoring? Who are you being an example to? I would say, first of all, in this thought that you must be an authentic example. Be authentic. We use the term, just be real. Be genuine. What do you like about that person? Nobody else likes them. What do you like about them? Well, they're just, they're real. I, I don't know about, I, I like people that are real more than I like people with a lot of personality. Personalities come and go. I, I want something that's, uh, that, that's real and, and genuine. Uh, and so the Bible tells us and Paul explains to us in Philippians chapter 3 uh, and verse number 17 as he's laying it out here. And he says, brethren, be followers together of me. Mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. Doesn't sound like some of the modern day culture that's like, be careful of following that pastor, be careful of following that lead, be careful. Of, Paul said, be followers of me. Right. Amen. God has put me here to be an example to you. Amen. I'm not saying put the man above Christ, but if the man's following Christ, follow the man that God's given you to lead you. And Paul says uh, that it, it very plainly, be followers together of me and mark them which walk so as we have us for an example. If you're a new Christian coming into the church, you ought to be looking and say, yes, I want to follow the example of the pastor. I want to follow the example of my Sunday school teacher. I want to look around and see godly people as I learn them in church. I want to follow their example. There's not anything wrong with following the example of the godly. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. The converse is also true. You're blessed when you walk in the counsel of the godly. And when we look and we understand what he's saying here, he's saying, listen, be an authentic Example. You don't have to be perfect, but you do have to be genuine. The, listen, people aren't looking for perfection. They're looking for people that are real. Amen. Be a real Christian. Be a genuine Christian. And not what they think a Christian should look like, but what the Bible says a Christian should be. And we understand and learn and teach. He says also in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, in verse 9, not because we have not power. In other words, he says, I have power and authority, the Apostle Paul here, to lay some things down. But he says, not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an example unto you to follow us. He says, rather than just coming in and laying down the law and saying, this is the way it's going to be. I'm endeavoring to live this before you so that I'm being an example to you. Who are you being an example for this morning? Who are you being an authentic mentor to? Are you this morning, am I this morning a real, genuine, authentic example of what the Christian life should be? An authentic example, secondly, becomes and must be an active educator. An active educator. Why? Because if you're making a disciple, you have to educate them to the truths of God's word. When you educate someone, you have to teach them truth that they do not know. 
And once you've taught them that truth, you have to make sure that they understand how to correctly use it. Which means that sometimes you're going to have to get rid of some bad habits. Which means that an effective teacher not only educates, but then they eliminate. Not their students, but the bad habits that their students pick up. Brother Don's a math teacher. He can teach math, but if the students practice faulty techniques, he has to eliminate that. Or they're never going to get the right answers. They're never going to be able to solve and come to the right solution. When you look and you understand uh, what I'm saying here this morning, I must be an active educator. In other words, if I'm discipling someone, I am educating them to the truths of God's word, but I am also eliminating bad habits in their life. Now, I'm not lording over them, but I'm trying to point out some unhealthy things. It's really, back to our sports analogy, it's like what a coach does. A coach takes and he teaches a technique, and when he teaches that technique and the athlete begins to practice that technique, the coach steps back and watches every movement. And then they criticize every movement because they're trying to eliminate improper form because improper form throws off and, and, and skewers the end result. I remember teaching young men how to play basketball. I remember when I was taught how to play basketball. Just the, the concept of how to shoot the ball, how to hold the ball, how to keep your elbow tucked in. If your elbow's flailing around out here while you're trying to shoot, you're not going to be accurate. Uh, how to use your whole body. You don't just use your arm when you shoot a ball. You don't stand flat-footed. There's bounce in your step. You're on the balls of your feet. You use your knees and you use your hips and you use uh, your chest and your arms. It's one fluid motion. Your eyes have to be trained and fixed on the right spot. You have to be concentrated and focused. And when the form is off, the shot is off. If the elbow is out of place, it's off. If the hand is misplaced, it's off. If the eyes shift to the wrong side of the rim or the wrong part of the rim, it's off. If you forget to, uh, to use your legs, it's going to be short. You can always tell when a player is tired at the end of a game when they're normally accurate because everything's bouncing off the front of the rim. And when you know and understand the concept, what a coach does, he educates then he watches the form to critique it so that he can eliminate unhealthy and bad habits so that the end result is success. And then what does he do? He encourages. He criticizes that which is wrong and encourages that which is right. What is a mentor in the Christian life supposed to be? They're supposed to be a mentor, a coach. They are to educate, but they also must eliminate false teaching. They also must eliminate false thinking. They also must eliminate and help you to see the, the value and uh, in, in learning truth and the harm and skewering it a little bit or being a little bit off and seeing where it's going to end up. And then they have to encourage. You have to pick, pick people up. Listen, when you have to deal with a problem and you've got to tear somebody down, you don't leave them down. You want to lift them back up and send them away encouraged. You're not trying to destroy someone's faith. You're trying to build someone's faith. And when you look at what Jesus is doing to them here and what he's saying to them is he's saying, listen, I've loved you. God's loved me. I've loved you. Stay with me. It's going to be hard. The next few hours are going to be difficult. Don't get weary. Wake up. Stay with me. Continue in my love. A genuine disciple maker must be a genuine mentor and must have a genuine message. And thirdly, must inspire genuine motivation. Who are you inspiring to serve Christ today? Who have you inspired 
to give their heart to Christ. Again in our text in verse number 14, For ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command. What motivates us? And really the difference here is that we're not looking for people to just conform. We're looking for the Holy Spirit to transform us. To change fundamentally from the inside out who we are. But it is a process to get from one point to the next. When we look and understand that inspiring genuine motivation, uh, that that original inspiration comes from Christ and that sustained inspiration must come from Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17 tells us that we should be motivated by his love for us. Uh, and in, in 2 Corinthians 5.14 he says, For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then, all, then we're all dead. And what he's saying here is, listen, the love that I have, Christ for, I have for Christ and the love that Christ has for me should be the guiding force in my life. The, the, why am I not doing something that's harmful to my spiritual life? Because I've been held back by my love for Christ. If I do that, it will hurt him. His love holds me back. His love inspires me to not do the wrong thing. And his love inspires me, compels me to make better decisions and to do the right thing. Motivated by his love for me. Not only that, I need to be committed by my love for him. Listen, you can be a person of high character that can be committed to a lot of things. And you can see it through because you've got great discipline. But that doesn't make you real. Someone that's real is committed because of love. And what we need in the, in the church and what we need in our Christian life and what Jesus is looking for is Christians who are not simply uh, following along because they want to feel better about their lives, but they want to express genuine love for him because they've experienced genuine love from him. Committed by my love for him. 2 Corinthians chapter number 8 and just a few pages over from where we were just a moment ago. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and contextually here, the Apostle Paul is talking to the church at Corinth, and there are some people that have a need, and Paul is trying to help encourage them, and he's trying to meet uh, that need, and it's a it happens to be a financial need. Uh, and so uh, he comes to them, and he is seeking from them some help for others. Now, the principle here is not uh, that we need to take an offering to help somebody. The principle is, is that our willingness to to engage in a need that God brings to our attention is a, is a verification of the authenticity of our love for Christ. Notice what he says in chapter 8 and verse number 8. But I speak, I speak not by commandment. In other words, you don't have to contribute. But by occasion of the forwardness of others and to prove the sincerity of your love. Here's a need. It's an opportunity for you to prove that you love Christ sincerely. He says also in the same chapter in verse 24, Wherefore show ye to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. And the Apostle Paul said, listen, I've been going around telling everybody about how much you love Jesus. Now there's an opportunity for you to demonstrate that love. Prove your love. But it's love. The great motivator in the Christian life shouldn't be duty or coercion or, uh, or, or a guilt trip. It should be expressing our love for Christ. Committed by our love for him. In 1 Timothy chapter number 4 and verse number 14, he says, Neglect not the gift that is in thee, 
which was given thee by the prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. In verse 12 he says, Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word and conversation. Again, conversation not being a chat, but conversation being habits of life, a lifestyle. In conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Committed, pure, because I love him. And then I'm cultivating his love in others. And that motivation, that inspiring of motivation in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16 is not a stranger to anyone that's known Christ for any length of time at all uh, but and it's certainly uh, we understand the the, the principle of uh, letting our light shine but in context of our love for Christ notice he says let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father which is in heaven listen our lives should so inspire others that it cultivates God's love in them. Your example and your investment and your genuineness should cause others to look at you and not glorify you, but glorify God. Amen. And we look and we understand that if I would make a disciple this morning, I must be one. But once I become one or am becoming one, I need to be teaching a genuine message and I need to be a genuine mentor and I need to inspire genuine, authentic motivation. In other words, I'm not motivating from guilt. I'm not motivating uh, from, uh, from the pleasing of man, but I'm motivating from our love for Christ. Listen, his love for you is real. Be real in his love. When we look and we understand what he's doing, understand that his love through you will draw others to him. Now I want you to notice one more thing as we close this morning that's kind of tucked in here in John 15. He's going to the cross. He knows what's coming. Remember Hebrews chapter 12 and verse number 2. When he says, but for the joy that was set before him, despising the cross, Enduring the shame. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. He's going to the cross. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love. Even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. When I'm taken into custody, my joy remains in you. When I'm beaten and shamed, my joy remains in you. When I'm gasping for my last breath on the cross, my joy remains in you. When I'm laid in a grave, my joy remains in you and your joy is full. Don't get your eyes on these seemingly bad circumstances. Keep your eyes on the eternal. This sacrifice, this suffering is going to give life. I'm going to rise again. I'm going to manifest myself in your life. I'm going to empower you to do what I've trained you to do.
You don't have to do it on your own. I'm going to do it through you. I've written these things to you. I'm speaking these things to you so that you can have my joy and that my joy in you is full, even in your suffering, even in my suffering. Christian life's not always easy. But no matter what you're going through, you can always experience this joy. Amen. What's the message? The message is don't be focused on today. Stay focused on the big picture. Amen. If a little suffering today brings people to Christ tomorrow, then for the joy that's set before you, and bear your cross. Bear it. Because that's what he did for you. And he says, Greater love hath no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. Are you my friends? Amen. Keep my commandments. Are you his friend this morning? Do you understand his love this morning? Do you have his joy this morning? Focus on him and you can't help but having those things come to pass in your life.